Let's open up our Bibles to Genesis 11. We're going to shake it up a little bit this morning. We're going to take a step back and try to remind ourselves where Lot came from, because we're seeing the end of Lot right here in the end of chapter 19, and so I wanted to go back, and we're going to see where Lot has come from, and take a look at his development, if we're looking at a story, his character development, through these several chapters of Genesis. It's a sobering thing to see that the, the path he takes, it's, a, it's not a path that we want to model our own lives after. And we have a lot to learn from Lot. The first time that Lot is mentioned in the Bible is Genesis 11.27. Genesis 11.27 tells us that Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begot Lot. So Lot is Abram's nephew. He's the son of Abram's brother Haran. And that's who Lot is. In verse 31, Terah and his family, Terah is Abram and Haran's dad. In verse 31, Terah and his family, including Abraham and Lot, moved to Haran, the place, not the person. Don't be confused with those two. Then in Genesis 12, verse 4, it says that Abram left his home and traveled to Canaan, and that was the land that God had promised him. And Lot traveled with Abraham. Now, after their brief stint going down to Egypt to outrun that famine in Canaan, Abram, Sarai, Lot, and all those with them traveled back up north and came back into Canaan. This time, they had so much livestock that Abram and Lot needed to part ways. They needed to live in separate areas so their herds would have enough grass. There just wasn't enough land for both of them. So in Genesis 13, Abram allows Lot to take the first pick of whatever land he chooses. Verses 11 through 13 in chapter 13 read, Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Man, that was a mistake. Because that was Lot's first inclination toward that evil city. And Sodom is also used to represent in the Bible the world and all of its promises. Abram remains where God called him, separate from the wicked cities. But Lot tries walking on the edge. He tries to toe that line between acceptable and unacceptable. And that's a place where sometimes we find ourselves. Can I get away with this? How close can I live to the city without being considered one of them? He pitches his tent where he can look out the front of it and see the city. 
And I just imagine him sitting outside of his tent in the, the cool part of the day, looking onto the city and daydreaming about what it would be like to be in the city. We can see his heart starting to incline towards the world. And now fast forward to the events of Genesis 14, when those conquering kings defeat the city of Sodom and take their residents captive, haul them up north. Verse 12 says, They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. So by this time, we know from this that Lot was dwelling in the city because the city was sacked and all of its inhabitants and goods were taken. So Lot was in the city at this point. He had given in to that. He had succumbed to his fleshly desires to be with everyone else. And then Abram gathers up that little army that he had of over 300 and goes north to rescue the captives. He goes up there, he rescues Lot and all the other residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. And at this point, they all had an opportunity to repent and separate themselves from the wickedness of the city. They saw that miracle of the Lord providing victory to Abraham. They saw that, they got to witness it, and they were part of it. There's no way that Abram's 300 or so troops should have defeated those four kings of mighty nations. They had an opportunity to repent, and they chose, even Lot chose, to go back to their cities and to keep doing what they were doing. And then we really don't hear from Lot again until chapter 19. And we see him sitting in the gate of the city as those two angels of the Lord walk into the city. As the scene opens, Lot's sitting there in the gate of Sodom. That means he's not only dwelling in the city now, but that he has some kind of elevated status in the city. It could mean that he was anything from a merchant to some kind of a dignitary or official. By the world standards, he was doing really well for himself. He had also started a family by this point. And they're growing up around all of this evil in the city. As God promised to Abraham, he sent these two angels into Sodom to rescue the righteous of the city from the destruction that he was about to send. Lot, although Peter does tell us he was righteous, he still had to be drugged out of the city by his earlobes. He was so reluctant to leave. He was so attached to the city that he didn't want to leave behind anything although he knew destruction was coming. And this whole tragedy of Lot takes a major downward spiral when he moves into the mountains from Zoar. You remember last week, he 
pleaded with the angels who were dragging him out of Sodom that he could go to a smaller city nearby, Zoar, instead of fleeing to the mountains where God had told him to flee to. The angel grants his wishes. He says he won't destroy that city. So Lot goes to Zoar. And then in verse 30 here in chapter 19, it says, Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains. So he actually ends up where God told him to go in the first place. And I imagine it going something like this. He gets out of Sodom. He makes it to Zoar. And he's safe. It's a little city. The angel's not going to destroy it. And then he sees what happens to Sodom. And he says, oh, no. I am not sticking around here. I am going where God told me to go. And then he gets up out of Zoar and goes to the mountains with his two daughters. And that's where we're picking up in verse 30. His compromise has led him to this position. You know, his sons were killed in the destruction of the city, Sodom. They were completely given over to wickedness. They didn't heed what he was going to to tell them. His two married daughters and their spouses, same thing. Two of his daughters, the ones that were unmarried, made it to physical safety with him in the mountains. They escaped the city. But they did not outrun the effect of growing up in that city. They grew up in a morally degraded society. And the effects of that are clearly seen through the rest of this chapter. That's what we're going to look at. We're going to read all the way through verse 38 here. This will take us to the end of chapter 19. Then we'll go back and look at this a little closer. Genesis 19, verse 30. Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. And of course, when it says to this day, this is when Moses was writing this. So Lot goes into the mountains. He dwells in a cave with his two unmarried daughters. 
And this is a sad, sad scenario. You see, although Lot himself was strong enough to handle the evil influence of the city, his family was not. And that influence destroyed them. There's not a single mention here at the end of this chapter of God. There is no mention of it. No mention of prayer or God's provision or his love or his care toward them. The thought never even crosses their mind. Because if we live in compromise, that's the side our children will take. The world is too attractive to be giving mixed signals to your kids and expect that they're going to choose correctly. There's an inconsistency to the message we're communicating to them if we confess Jesus as the Lord of our life and go out on Saturday nights, get slobber and drunk, come home, you can't even make out an intelligible sentence to tell them good night. That does not communicate the love of Christ. There's an incongruency there. There's no greater disservice that you can do for your kids than to tell them by your actions that Jesus can't change their life. That's the hard reality of the situation. Think about it. Because that's the message they're receiving. If there's an incongruency to what I'm saying and how I'm living, that's very confusing for a child. 2 Peter 2.8 tells us that Lot was a righteous man. He was considered righteous by God, but his soul was vexed by the wicked deeds going on around him. He was righteous. He was strong enough to maintain his convictions, but his family was not, and they suffered because of his choice to live in the city, to mingle with the world. You see, it's not just a problem of locality. It's a problem of the heart. Lot chose to live and grow, raise his children in a compromised position, and that's what led to them sleeping with their dad, and having kids by him. All of the sexual perversion from the city of Sodom leaked into the kids. And you can't escape that. Compromise produces this outcome. Chapter 20. We're going to circle around to Abraham now. And no doubt, Abraham was one of the greats of the faith. But even Abraham stumbles occasionally. And we have several examples of that recorded in God's word. This chapter is going to sound familiar to you. Because Abraham replays one of his previous mistakes. He falls back into the same thing. And a quick note, Abimelech is not this man's name. It was his title. 
He was the king of Gerar. Let's read these first seven verses here. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Yep, we've seen this before. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all those who are yours. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night. And said to him, indeed, you are a dead man. That's not what you want to hear from God. And he sounds more like the Godfather than Father God here. God kind of tattles on Abraham here. You know, and it's it's really a good thing. Because who knows how long Abimelech would have kept Sarah. Had it not been for God telling him what was wrong. And he may have transgressed even worse. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she even herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. We see a stark contrast between Abimelech's reaction to God's correction and Sarah's reaction to God's correction. Remember when she was eavesdropping from the tent, and she laughed within herself. The Lord said, why did you laugh at that? She said, oh, I didn't laugh at that, denying something that she clearly had done. The Lord said, no, but you did laugh. He knows. There is no sense in us trying to deny the facts. He knows. But Abimelech doesn't deny the fact that he took Sarah for himself. In this case, and in this specific scenario, he really was deceived by Abraham and Sarah. And that's what he takes to God. He says, God, I didn't know. They tricked me. He doesn't deny the action. See, honesty really is the best policy, especially when you're dealing with God, who knows everything and cannot learn anything. He knows what you did, and he knows the intents of your heart. There's no sense in trying to cover that up. We can be honest with him. And he wants us to be. He wants us to come in true repentance. 
Now, even though Abimelech didn't know Sarah was Abraham's wife, he still had a harem of concubines, which isn't exactly innocent. But in this specific case, I suppose he was innocent. Verse 6, And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. You didn't really know that she was his wife. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So even, even though he took her, God supernaturally kept him from her in some way. We, we don't know exactly what that was. It could have been because later on it says that Abimelech was healed. God could have stricken him with some kind of disease that kept him from having intimacy with any of his wives. That's possible. We're not sure. Verse 8, so Abimelech rose early in the morning. I think I would too. If God said I was a dead man, if I didn't do something. I'd get up early and get that done. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. I would think so. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, Why did you, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? Abimelech seems to genuinely be questioning why Abraham would lie to him like this. He doesn't really understand because surely Abraham knew that something bad would happen if Abimelech took his wife. I mean, surely that was a thought that crossed his mind. You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. And Abraham said, because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. Wow. Remember, too, that these events with Abimelech happen within a year of God promising Abraham and Sarah a child. Because when he makes that promise, less than a year from this point, he says, this time next year, I will visit you and you will be with child. So now they have a timeline on it. It's just a few months ago that he said that. And now Abraham is worried that he's going to die. How could God fulfill his promise if Abraham was dead? The answer is he couldn't. So why is he fearing for his life? Well, it seems to be a momentary lapse in faith. Humans. It's good to see Abraham's humanity. I really can't say I'm glad that he experienced this lapse in faith, but I am glad that the Holy Spirit saw it fit to include this in his record. You know, in Hebrews 11, Abraham is mentioned as one of the faithful men of the Old Testament. He was considered righteous based on his faith in the Lord, as we saw in Genesis 15, 6 but his faith wasn't perfect. 
Isn't that a relief? He had moments of weakness, just like each one of us do. Yet, in God's word, he is counted as righteous on the basis of his faith. That's comforting. Don't have to be perfect. But indeed, this is Abraham speaking, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Now Abraham's trying to justify what happened. He's trying to soften the reality of the situation by telling Abimelech that what he said of Sarah was true. But indeed, she truly is my sister. The problem is, it's just a half-truth, which is really a full lie. It was said with dishonest intentions. This is a piece of new information, though. We see here, and we didn't learn this the first time that he made this mistake, but we see here that Sarah is actually his half-sister. They have the same father, Terah, but they have different mothers. In verse 13, And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, and this is a long time ago, remember? Several, many years ago. That I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, see, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand. That's funny. I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus, she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech, because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This account sort of reads as if it happened all very quickly together. However, it seems to me that these events would have had to have been stretched over a period of several months. There had to have been time for Abimelech and the women of his house to realize that they were having fertility problems, based on these last few verses. God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children. So we know that that was not happening before. They would have had time to realize that. It couldn't have been more than a year, because remember this probably happened shortly after God made that promise to Sarah and Abraham that they would have a son in a year's time. So it had to be condensed. It's important to take note here that God treats marriage sacredly. This was long before the seventh commandment was given against adultery. Yet, 
God still regarded marriage as a sacred, exclusive covenant. Oswald Sanders said, Christian perfection is not the perfection of performance, but the perfection of relationship. I love that. Yes, we should be growing and we should be living more wisely today than we were a year ago. But perfection for us now is this. When we do fail, we can go to him and say, Father, forgive me. And he will. Christian perfection is not the perfection of performance, but the perfection of relationship. If you have a kid acting up, running around the house, being a menace, you don't say, pack your suitcase, change your last name, get out of here. No, you work with them. There is that relationship, and that's like our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Chapter 21. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. I love that verse. God fulfilled his promise. He did as he had said. He did for Sarah as he had spoken. Remarkable. And that's always how it happens, by the way. God does what he says. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. God waited until both Abraham and Sarah were well past the age of childbearing before he blessed them with their son. He wanted to make sure that this couldn't be attributed to natural means. There's no way that these two people could have created a new life at the age that they both were. He waited. Now, please understand this. God's timing is not always our timing. In fact, it rarely is our timing. But God's timing is perfect timing. Abraham and Sarah get impatient at one point. And they resort to helping God bring about his promise. They throw Hagar into the mix. And she ends up being severely mistreated because of what happens there. But in God's time, he brings the perfect fulfillment of his promise. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, specifying that Sarah was the one this time, Isaac, Itzhak, meaning laughter. In Genesis 17, when God told Abraham he would have a son by Sarah, Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. And that was a laughter of joy. It's a remarkable thing that God is telling him. In the next chapter, in 18, Sarah laughs at the same promise, but it's kind of a sneering, unbelieving kind of a laugh. One of disbelief. And I find... God's sense of humor fascinating. Since both of them laughed, they might as well name their son Laughter. It would be a constant reminder of the wonderful promise God had made them. 
Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. When that vitamin K and the prothrombin were there, just like God had commanded him. In accordance with their covenant, Abraham circumcises this child of promise. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And at this point, it's been 25 years since Abraham first received word from God that he would have a son. He's been waiting on the fulfillment of this promise for 25 years. He was 75 years old when he left Haran with the promise, I will make you a great nation. After about 10 years, they brought Hagar into the situation. And then 15 years after that, they're finally holding Isaac in their arms. Patience. God's timing. Neither one of them would have preferred to wait that long, yet it is glorifying to God that they waited that long. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said that Abraham and Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. It's easy to think that Sarah is being a bit disingenuous here because she talks about how God made her laugh. And she says it positively, like it's a positive thing. But the record we have of her laughing is in disbelief. And it may seem that she's trying to spin it around and speak positively of her laughing. But I think that this is completely genuine. I think that Yes, she might have experienced, and she did experience, a momentary lapse in judgment when she laughed the first time in disbelief. But now that God's blessing is here, now that this child has been born, that laughter of disbelief has been turned into a laughter of joy. And it's crazy. You know, when God blesses our socks off, What do we do? We laugh because we can't believe it. And it's amazing. That's the kind of laughter that her sneering laughter has been turned into. Blessings will do that. It's so cool to look back on circumstances in your life that were simply impossible. There was no way out of it or there was no way in And you look back on it, you realize how insane it was, and you just see God's hand in it. That's a wonderful thing. And, you know, Summer and I just recently have laughed about some blessings. It's just a wonderful thing. And all who hear will laugh with me. Everyone who hears this news and the way that all of this happened will join in laughter because the circumstances were so unlikely. And as we come to verse 8 here, family tensions are high. Ishmael has been raised by Hagar and Abraham as their son, but now the new son is introduced, and all the attention is given to him. 
If you've had more than one kid, you know how this goes, right? As soon as the second one is born, the attention that the first one's used to getting is put on the second one, and then they start acting out. So Ishmael is already feeling all of those feelings right now, and Isaac would have been weaned at about two or three years old. They waited a little longer to wean at this time. So Ishmael would have been about 15 years old because he was about 13 years older than Isaac. Isaac's two or three right now. So Ishmael was definitely a teenager. He was about a 15-year-old. So you can imagine the two going on here. So the child grew and was weaned, talking about Isaac. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. There you go. They celebrated the weaning of Isaac with this feast. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, that's Ishmael, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. So Sarah sees Ishmael scoffing at this feast that they're throwing to celebrate Isaac's weaning. No surprise, really, because God told Hagar concerning her son, he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. So we knew he'd have a hard time getting along with others later in life. And sure enough, he does. Therefore, she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. Sarah's reaction doesn't sit well with Abraham because he loved his son. He didn't want to see him and his mom cast out. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight, because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman, because he is your seed. Now, I'm sure it's hard for Abraham to figure out whether he should actually listen to Sarah in this situation. Because remember, the last time he listened to his wife, that's when Hagar was introduced. And all of that went down. That was not a good time to listen to Sarah. But now he's having conflicting thoughts. You know, do I listen to her? Do I cast them out? Or do I keep them? But God directs him this time to listen to his wife. You know, sometimes we can all use some divine insight when it comes to our spouses. God also reconfirms to Abraham that the promise will be fulfilled in Isaac, not Ishmael. However, God is so gracious to Abraham, and he knows the longings of his heart. So he says he will also make Ishmael a nation. Ishmael won't be the fulfillment of the promise, but he will bless him. That also means that Ishmael will survive when Abraham must cast him out. 
See, that's faith. Abraham knew that he wasn't sending Ishmael to his death when he casted him out. Now, I won't belabor this point because we've already covered it a couple weeks ago, but in Galatians 4, verse 20, Paul quotes verse 10, and he uses it to make a really interesting point. So bookmark Galatians 4, 20, and take a look at it this week. Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water. And putting it on her shoulder, that is Hagar, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And we'll see from here on that Abraham seems to make a habit of this rising early in the morning. And I think that's good. I, I like getting up early, and I think there's something special there when you get up early in the morning Nobody else is around, your phone's not buzzing yet, and you can spend some time with the Lord. I think that's good. And the water in the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went down and sat across from him at a distance of about a bow shot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. It's a sad, sad scene. And of course, Hagar, as a mother, is devastated because she thinks that her son is going to die in the wilderness. So she sits far from him to spare her the horror of watching him pass. And it says she lifted her voice and wept. Nobody can blame her for that. But look, while Hagar was having a meltdown, it seems that Ishmael, over in the shrubs, was praying. Verse 17 says, And God heard the voice of the lad. Not Hagar's voice this time. He had heard her voice the first time she was in the wilderness and crying out. But this time he hears Ishmael, whose name means... God hears. Very interesting. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Before she can answer, he goes on, Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. This is not the angel of the Lord that appeared to Hagar in the wilderness before. This doesn't seem to be a Christophany, just one of God's angels. And, you know, I say just one of God's angels. Like, like it's not something special, but not a Christophany here. Before she even has a chance to answer, answer this angel's question, what ails you? He says, fear not. For God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. What a great thing for a mother to hear. Abraham must have done well raising Ishmael with the knowledge of God Almighty. Because Ishmael calls on God in a very difficult, desperate circumstance and at a fairly young age. 
at 15-ish years old, Ishmael has the wherewithal to be in a desperate situation and call on God. That speaks well of how Abraham parented. And it draws a sharp contrast between Abraham and Lot. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. Now, it doesn't say that God created a well there. It says that he opened her eyes to see it. For some reason, she couldn't see this well that was nearby before God had opened her eyes. Was it just in her emotional turmoil? You know, sometimes when we're feeling very strong emotions, we don't think very logically. You know, and I'm right there with you. But now God opens up her eyes. Maybe he clears her mind for her, lessens the burden on her. And she saw this well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife from him, wife for him from the land of Egypt. So as expected, Ishmael grows up as a wild man, just as God had said. And it says that he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. His mom also got him an Egyptian wife. And I'm sure she was partial to the Egyptian women since she was one herself. And then we come to verse 22. And it came to pass at the time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. You know, it's interesting that they realize that. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. Now, since Abimelech is a title and not a name, we aren't 100% sure if this is the same Abimelech that Abraham had dealt deceitfully with. But I tend to think that it is the same Abimelech because he makes Abraham swear to him that he won't deal falsely with him. Seems like he's had a negative interaction with Abraham before. You know, and that's a sad thing to have someone remember about you. It just is. Again, we see that Abraham isn't perfect. And Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. So <laughs> Abraham makes good use of this time with Abimelech by calling him out on something. And apparently some of Abimelech's men had seized a well that Abraham had dug. And of course, in that part of the world, even to today, water is a very scarce and precious resource. So this was a big deal. And he brings this to Abimelech's attention 
But Abimelech says that he didn't know anything about it. He doesn't know what happened here. Then they make this covenant together, basically aligning themselves as allies. Abimelech could see that God was with Abraham. And he took this opportunity to side with Abraham and with God. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be a witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. (laughs) So every time Abimelech sees these seven lambs, he'll remember that, oh, Abraham dug that well. And that well was called Beersheba, meaning well of the oath. And it's still called that in Israel today. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. That's the first time that everlasting God is used in the Bible. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. Some people will kind of nitpick at this verse because this area wasn't known as the land of the Philistines until much after Abraham. So they'll say it's anachronistic, but Moses, in writing about these places, uses the names that his contemporary readers would understand. So he calls this the place of the Philistines. Abraham didn't know it as the land of the Philistines, but Moses and the men contemporary with him certainly did. Now, that takes us through chapter 21, and there's a lot there. There's a lot that we can take out of that. The biggest thing that I want us to take out of that this morning is this idea of congruency. Are your actions, is the way you're living congruent with what you confess, with Jesus as the Savior and Lord of your life. Ralph Waldo Emerson said something that I think is intriguing. He said, your actions speak so loud, I can't hear what you say. Isn't that true? If somebody's just acting a fool and they're talking about Jesus... Nobody's going to hear you talk about Jesus because of how you act. Your actions speak so loud, I can't hear what you say. And I would leave you with this question just to think about this week. If you have kids, what kind of gospel are we preaching to our kids through our actions? If you don't have kids, apply that to your life. Coworkers, you know, spouse, friends. What kind of gospel are we preaching through our actions? Is it one of Jesus Christ who can save and transform a life? Or is it one of a Jesus that doesn't really make a difference? That makes me blend in with the world? That makes me 
compromise that doesn't distinguish me in any way. Which gospel are you preaching? Because that's very confusing to people. You see one thing, you hear another thing, they'll just reject it. You know, generally, people are lazy. People are lazy. When you see an ad for something, if you don't know what it's talking about or what they're trying to sell you, just keep swiping. There's no sense in even putting that ad out there because nobody's going to take the time to try to figure out what they're saying. You have to be clear and concise when you're trying to get people to listen to what you're saying. If people are confused, just like in a marketing message, if people are confused about the life you live and what you're trying to communicate to them, they will stop listening. They will turn around and they'll go listen to somebody else who's probably tickling their ears. They will run to the world. What kind of gospel are we preaching through our actions? In two weeks, we will be in chapter 22, the Akedah. This is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. The symbolism, the typology contained in chapter 22 is unmatched, in my opinion. It's remarkable. So read ahead, read chapter 22, and we will be in that next time. Let's close this morning in a word of prayer. Please bow with me. Thank mm-hmm. you.